Welcome to the Public Morality. The Supreme Court at the time of this broadcast still has several controversial cases on its docket before its term ends in June. The court will decide on issues ranging from guns to abortion and how might it impact America going forward. Joining me to discuss the Supreme Court is Professor Paul Collins. Professor Collins is a professor of legal studies and political science at the University of Massachusetts at Amherst. Professor Paul Collins, welcome to The Public Morality. Thank you so much, Byron. It's great to be here. Though at the time of this uh, broadcast, the court has yet to deliver opinions on guns, carbon emissions, religious freedom, immigration, voting rights, and of course, abortion. If the Roberts Court were to end today, taking the court in its totality, how would you critique its legacy? I'm not sure it's the Roberts Court anymore. I think it was the Roberts Court up until the Trump administration came into power, but I think Chief Justice Roberts basically lost control of his court uh, when Amy Coney Barrett joined it. And I think that will largely be the legacy of the Roberts Court. You had a Chief Justice who wanted to advance a conservative agenda, but to do so in a somewhat moderate way. And once he was joined by five other conservatives. He basically was marginalized on his own court. With that said, would it be fair to offer um, this court um, has become brazenly political or has the court always been political and we just chose not to see it? So the Supreme Court has always been a political institution. Um, it was designed that way. So, you know, the Constitution, the way we select Supreme Court justices, having the president who's elected nominate, having the Senate who's elected confirm, that basically guarantees that we're going to have a political Supreme Court. What's different today is that the court is very, very partisan and it's very, very unbalanced. So if we look back even just the last 50 or 60 years, you see a Supreme Court that advances different agendas, liberal agendas, conservative agendas, but it's fairly balanced. Today, the Supreme Court's no longer balanced. We don't really have moderate justices anymore on the Supreme Court, at least on the conservative side. And so we've got a court that's become really emboldened to advance a conservative agenda. And that's different than what we've seen uh, over the past 50 years. Remember, we haven't had a liberal Supreme Court since 1969. And I, I'm, I'm gonna touch on that. I'm gonna touch on that liberal court in just a second. Um, it all, it, it seems, at least to me, and I'll let to have you opine on this, that. When we talk about the political nature of this this particular court, we can't divorce the perceptions of the current court as a political body without also factoring the naked political manner that the 6-3 conservative majority was achieved. Your thoughts, sir? A hundred percent. In a real way, the reason why public support for the Supreme Court is so low isn't entirely because of the Supreme Court. It's because of the way the Supreme Court got to the six to three majority. And so the raw power politics that we witnessed starting at the very, very end of Obama's administration, 
and continuing through the Trump administration that got us to this very, very partisan, very, very conservative Supreme Court. That's something that really we've never seen throughout American history, the total destruction of norms about how we pick justices on the Supreme Court, just throwing them aside in order to advance a brazenly political agenda. I would just like to throw in there, if I could, that there was nothing because the sort of the the, the central player in all of this was um, Senator Mitch McConnell. There was nothing that McConnell did was unconstitutional, but you, something you just touched on that it was was a violation of democratic norms. A hundred percent. Most of how the Senate operates, including how Supreme Court justices are confirmed by the Senate is based on norms, not based on hard and fast constitutional rules. So, you know, the norm violations that we saw start with the refusal to consider Merrick Garland's uh, nomination by President Obama. And this is really the first time uh, in in, modern American history that a Supreme Court nominee that's not withdrawn doesn't get a confirmation hearing, doesn't get a confirmation vote. This allows President Trump to nominate Neil Gorsuch. And the big norm violation there, of course, is the end of the filibuster. And that's incredibly significant because what the filibuster did was basically moderate presidents. Um, It prevented presidents, both Democrats and Republicans, from appointing really ideologically extreme justices because it basically said, you know, you're gonna need 60 votes. Um, And so when you get rid of the filibuster, it opens the door for the appointment of very, very conservative Supreme Court nominees. And of course, Democrats will take advantage of this at some point in time. Um, And then, you know, you saw other more minor norm violations like getting rid of the quorum rule in the Senate Judiciary Committee, to ensure Amy Coney Barrett gets put on the Supreme Court. They have to back away from the rule they created to block Merrick Garland's appointment also to get Amy Coney Barrett on the Supreme Court. And so all of this feeds into a public view of the Supreme Court that it's an incredibly partisan institution. But a lot of that is because of these norm violations committed by the Senate. On that that point, putting on your political science hat for a moment here. Um, it, what was done um, in the case of Merrick Garland and Amy Coney Barrett, respectively, what was done there um, did not, in my view, receive a proper backlash because there was a, uh, because there was a large number of the American population. I mean, I don't know if it was a majority now, but it was a large number that it, the outcome justified the behavior. And when you're a when you're a democratic republican form of government, that the process, how one reaches this decision, is equally important. Don't we, the people, bear some responsibility uh, because we looked solely at the outcome? And so it was okay to do what you did to Merrick Garland because it fits my agenda. It's okay to do what you did with Amy Coney Barrett because it fits my agenda, and that also contributes to this norm erosion that you're referring to. Yeah, that's a great insight. I I mean, the bottom line is what goes around comes around. And so when you get rid of these norms, the other party will eventually come into power and and they're going to take advantage of the situation. Um, 
one of the issues with the Supreme Court is that that could be a very long time, right? Um, so because Supreme Court justices have lifetime appointments, because they tend to stay on the bench now for about a quarter century, you know, the what goes around comes around for the Democrats might not be for a very, very long time. So in the meantime, Republicans who are OK with this norm violation, you know, they might not even think about it um, when what goes around comes around happens in a couple decades or something like that. But, yeah, I think that. It's unfortunate that there wasn't more backlash by the American people because these are important norms that moderate the Supreme Court. And you might like what the Supreme Court's agenda is today, but when you get rid of those norms, you know, sometime decades down the roads, you know, Republicans aren't going to like the undoing of the current Supreme Court, which is bound to happen because things tend to be pretty cyclical. Over the decades, we, we've had factions on the court. Uh, we, we've always known how certain justices, that's at least the last 50 years, we've known how certain justices were going to vote, especially in high profile cases. But there were always a few outliers. I'm thinking Sandra Day O'Connor, Anthony Kennedy. Uh, but the current configuration has seemingly just removed predictability from the equation. And I wonder how you saw that, sir. That's exactly right. Uh, this is the first time in modern American history that we can actually sort the Supreme Court by partisanship, which is to say all six conservatives are Republicans. The three uh, more liberal justices are, were appointed by Democratic presidents. And with the exception of perhaps Chief Justice Roberts, who does moderate himself from time to time, their behavior is quite predictable, both on the right and on the left. Um, and Roberts seemed to moderate himself because he he appears to care deeply about the institution of the Supreme Court. And so while he was advancing a conservative agenda, he recognized, for example, that it would look really bad if the United States Supreme Court's conservative majority overrule Barack Obama's signature policy achievement, right? The Affordable Care Act. He understood that that would look really bad. And so he defects and joins a liberal majority. And there's a few examples of, of Roberts doing this, even though overall he's a quite conservative justice. But Roberts, as I said earlier, has pretty much been marginalized now that the five more conservative justices who don't seem to have that deep concern for the Supreme Court as an institution, they can advance a conservative agenda, and they appear very willing to advance that agenda quite quickly. You just reminded me of the um, civics courses that I teach online, that one of the things I always tell my students is that if you, have, if you invoke constitutional interpretation, and if you do not find yourself contradicted by what you believe versus through the lens by which you look at something constitutionally, you really don't fully appreciate the American experiment. And it seems it, in, from my perspective now that we don't have that ethos at the highest uh, court in the land. It doesn't appear that way. Um, now, I think the conservative justices on the Supreme Court would disagree with me there. And, you know, they, they tend to hold a position that 
they don't vote ideologically, that we're confusing what they're doing and we're putting names on what they're doing. Uh, and they all, the, the five more conservative justices, they all sort of, uh, they either are deeply committed to or at least are quite favorable to the doctrine of originalism. But that judicial philosophy really is, you know, created almost to advance conservative agendas, even though it doesn't have to. But the reality is, is originalism is a great cover for conservative policy outcomes. And I tend to look at judging more from a social science perspective that I don't think it's a great idea to take judges at their word all the time, especially when we can systematically examine what they're doing. And systematically, this is probably the most conservative Supreme Court in modern American history. And in fact, I'll go ahead and take the word probably out of that uh, sentence. Well, that's a great segue to where I want to go with this conversation. One of the cases that the court has yet to rule at the time of this broadcast is a New York law. That's, I'm paraphrasing here, but says if one wants to carry a concealed weapon, they, they must get a license from an administrative authority. And to get that license, one must show they have proper cause. Uh, the argument against this law was that it violates the Second Amendment, as is understood in the 2008 ruling, Heller versus D.C., that ruled the Second Amendment guarantees individual rights to possess firearms independent of any service in the militia. In keeping with the theme of predictability, it would seem that stare decisis, the legal principle of precedent, um, will carry the day as it relates to the Heller decision, and, and the court will strike down this uh, New York law in, a, in effect giving Heller a wider scope. I don't want to get too far in the weeds here, but your thoughts on that, sir? So, so Byron, it appears that they just struck down the law. Um, it, it, I haven't had a chance to look deeply at the opinion, but it appears to be a six to three opinion. Um, and they did indeed strike down the New York law. This is breaking news on the public morality. Thank you, sir. <laughs> yeah, um, that, that was pretty predictable. Uh, you know, the justices seemed very skeptical. The conservative justices seemed very skeptical of the New York law at oral argument. Um, and they've been looking for opportunities to expand, as you said, the scope of the Heller decision and, and the uh, accompanying McDonald decision. And this case seemed like a great vehicle to do that. Um, that being said, the timing's pretty problematic as the nation grapples with school shootings, mass shootings, um, which seems like uh, on almost a weekly basis. And now the court is stepping into the equation and, and is going to make it easier for folks to carry concealed weapons uh, in, you know, the, the heart of the nation. And, and this is going to have the effect of striking down similar laws that New York City had as well. You, know, you, you mentioned in, a, in an earlier uh, answer, you talked about looking at it through the prism of social science. And it seems to me the court uh, historically has been very aware of changing norms. I mean, for, uh, I mean, for example, um, I, I um, don't see the court in 1919 up uh, voting the way the Warren Court did in Griswold versus Connecticut vis-a-vis -vis privacy. 
Uh, but but the Warren Court seemed to be a court, and the 60s that you mentioned, seemed to be a court that was also very aware of changing norms and society culture. My view, my perspective, this court does not seem to hold that concept in high regard. I, I think that's right. Uh, the Warren Court was a little bit willing to be ahead of its time. Uh, typically, the Supreme Court doesn't like to lead public opinion. It likes to follow public opinion. It sort of waits until you see the public coalesce around particular positions rather than try to force the public to move. The Warren Court didn't always do that. Um, the best example, of course, would be Brown versus Board of Education, where the Warren Court really moves public opinion, right? It, it tries to lead public opinion rather than follow public opinion. The current court really seems to be willing to advance a conservative political agenda. And for the most part, you know, that is an agenda that is not embraced by a majority of the country. And, and so just, you know, for example, in the leaked opinion uh, overruling Roe versus Wade, Justice Alito says a couple of times that abortion is a really divisive issue. And I think he sort of attributes that to Roe versus Wade. But actually, if you look at public opinion polls, by a two to one margin, Americans support Roe versus Wade. And, and so he's like playing fast and loose with reality and with public opinion there. I mean, that's a really big margin, right? It's like a 60 to 30 margin in almost every major legitimate poll in favor of Roe versus Wade. And so here you have a court stepping in and saying, oh, we're going to go with the 30%. And that's going to create all kinds of issues, not just for reproductive freedom, but for the legitimacy of the Supreme Court, for you know how Americans are going to look at the majority of the Supreme Court's willingness to render decisions that largely go against a majority or even a vast majority of the American public. Well, uh, sticking with the gun law for just a moment, so sort of the irony uh, would be that though Heller ruled that individual rights um, uh, to own a gun uh, was not tied to service in a state militia, Heller kept many bans in place, such as position by felons and mentally ill and the use of dangerous, unusual weapons, et cetera. Um, this decision that you broke here on the public rally further erodes the first portion of the Second Amendment as though it doesn't exist. It talks about the need of a well-regulated militia. That's almost like gone and it's further eroding. Your thoughts? I think it is basically gone. Um, the, the, you know, the Haller opinion and the dissent by Justice Stevens are really, really interesting because Heller is based in this sort of uh, conservative version of originalism. And Stevens took it upon himself to use an originalist approach to uh, and wrote a dissent. And Stevens focuses more on the first part, the preface, a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state. And the court's majority in Heller focuses more on the second part, the operative clause in the Second Amendment. And, you know, ultimately, Stevens loses out and in Heller and then in McDonald's um, and now in, in the New York case, you really see the preface to the Second Amendment um, just being thrown aside. And, you know, it, it, the, the one sentence version of Heller is really 
you can own a gun in self-defense, right? You, it's really about that self-defense part. And that seems to be what the court's majority um, was, was clinging to, that it's not just you can own a gun for self-defense in the privacy of your own home, but you can now carry a concealed handgun out on the streets, right? Because the notion that you might need to protect yourself carries outside of your residence. What is, in your view, sir, legislating from the bench? What, what does that mean? That's a great question. I don't really love that phrase. Um, but I, I sort of, when I'm teaching my classes, I sort of uh, teach students that it basically means when judges second guess the decisions of legislatures, when they overrule the decisions of legislatures or, or executives too. Um, it's sort of a loaded term because if we didn't, if judges didn't occasionally legislate the, from the bench under my definition, um, they'd be pretty powerless. Um, you know, it would basically mean to take away the power of judicial review in some ways. I was going to say, doesn't that throw out Marbury v. Madison? That's exactly what I was about to ask you. <laughs> yeah, I, I think of, uh, you know, it's become this this negative phrase that really, you know, judicial. I, I think of it uh, also as being very closely related to judicial activism, which largely, you know, today means any decision I don't like is a judicially activist decision. Um, I think it's better to talk in terms of, well, what would it mean if judges didn't have the power of judicial activism? What would it mean if judges didn't occasionally legislate from the bench? But uh, there's there's no real simple definition to either of those terms. Now, I, I raised that in going back to Heller. When, when one reads the Heller opinion uh, written by Justice Scalia and the manner that he rewords the Second Amendment to reach his, the, his opinion of Heller, um, couldn't one posit that that could be a form of legislating from the bench? Because the Second Amendment does not say what Scalia said it should say. Yeah, I mean, it's a great example of conservative judicial activism. It's almost definitionally conservative judicial activism, right? So you have a decision that overrules uh, the law in Heller. It was a District of Columbia law um, that's been around for a really, really long time, passed by a duly elected legislature, right, et cetera, et cetera. You've got a decision that seems largely inconsistent with um existing Supreme Court precedent in the case, U.S. versus Miller was was really the governing precedent there. You have a decision that you really have to do some legal gymnastics to get to that interpretation of the Second Amendment. I mean, you know, Warren Berger, who was a conservative uh, chief justice of the Supreme Court, basically said that this individualistic interpretation of the Second Amendment was a farce and that nobody should take it seriously. Yet the Supreme Court more recently takes it very, very seriously. This idea that we can just ignore the first part of the Second Amendment. I, I wanna talk about um, another case before the court, um, unless you have more breaking news for us that the court has yet to offer an opinion on, which is um, the, that uh, there's another case before the court that this is pressed largely by Republican state legislators, that state courts do not have the power to declare acts of the legislature unconstitutional, specifically on matters of the election. Talk about the potential ramifications if the court um, continues their consistent pattern and side 
with the state legislatures on this matter? Yeah, so one of the legacies of the Roberts Court, and this is where you do find Chief Justice Roberts almost always in the majority, is gutting voting rights, gutting voting right, the Voting Rights Act, and making it easier to create barriers to the franchise, to the right to vote. And this case is another example of that, where the Supreme Court is given an opportunity to you know, basically make it harder for judges to um, oversee what state legislatures are doing and protect the franchise, protect the right to vote. And so, you know, there's a practical implication of this, which is that it seems that the current Supreme Court is quite willing to endorse laws and policies that will help keep Republicans in power, perhaps long after their expiration date, which is to say the country in many parts of the country anyway, it, it seems to be moving a little bit more liberally, but Republicans are able to hold on to power through gerrymandering, through these uh, laws that heavily restrict the right to vote, particularly in communities of color. And the Supreme Court seems okay with this. And that's a really good example of how the conservative justices on the Supreme Court aren't just advancing a conservative agenda, but they're advancing an agenda of the Republican Party. You know, you, you know the, 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 the real irony here, uh, in my view, is that um, when the um, Constitution was ratified, and um, though not um, stated in the Constitution, it was ratified largely to the benefit of white male landowners, which was roughly 16% of the population. So roughly 84% of the population, including other white males, were disenfranchised. Um, you could argue, I certainly would argue, we did not have full equality in this country until the Voting Rights Act of 1965. And so what I'm hearing you say is there is uh, a commitment by this court to move us closer to 1787 and really disenfranchising large swaths of the American population? I think it's something we need to be talking about as a country. And it's a great point that you made because one of the things that we don't seem to discuss enough is the racial implications of the doctrine of originalism that the conservatives on the Supreme Court endorse and their gendered implications, which is to say, if your judicial philosophy calls for you to look back to the founding era and to ask, you know, what did this mean to the average member of the public? And perhaps to ask about legislative or framers intent, which is a related theory. We rarely discuss the fact that, you know, as you said, it was 16% of the population, but that meant, you know, no people of color, that meant no women were participating in those political conversations. And that's troubling. I think we should really be discussing this more that we have a judicial philosophy that's being endorsed by a majority of the Supreme Court that really has foundational racial and gendered problems with. 
I, I, I would advocate, uh, this is my little commercial here on the public rally, for those who haven't, they ought to read the letter that Abigail Adams sent to John in March of 1776 on his way to the Philadelphia com uh, Convention when she's saying, remember the ladies, because like when you men get together, you become a little tyrannical. So don't forget the ladies. So. I mean, what Abigail Adams is saying there is really echoing in the 21st century what you just what you just said. I mean, I can see Abigail Adams being up in arms by some of these recent uh, rulings by this particular court. Definitely, absolutely. I want to talk about the uh, leaked opinion uh, earlier this year by Justice Alito on the Mississippi abortion law, though though not final. It did suggest uh, there were at least five justices willing to uphold it, and in effect, uh, uh, removing Roe versus Wade, at least as we know it. So even if some of the original draft language is moderated, such as questioning the larger implications of the right to privacy, it seems the concept of stare decisis that we talked about earlier doesn't carry much weight on this court when it's something that they want to do. Your thoughts? This is a really important development. And this is also something that separates the current Supreme Court from other Supreme Courts uh, in modern American history, which is to say this Supreme Court seems willing to get rid of foundational precedents if they don't square with their originalist perspective, okay? So in other words, when judges are adjudicating cases, there's a lot of different approaches they can use. And they often try to balance different approaches. And you know, there's also a strong concern for consistency in law. But this court seems to pretty blatantly view it as perfectly acceptable to get rid of precedents if they don't square with how they understand originalism. And so in the example of the abortion case that the court's going to hand down very soon, they don't view Roe versus Wade as an originalist precedent. And, you know, I think we should have concerns about whether they view Griswold versus Connecticut as an originalist precedent. And so if you don't think that it squares with an originalist interpretation of the Constitution, they believe it's okay to just get rid of it. To that end, if you, uh, again, we don't know what the final uh, opinion is going to say, but when you read uh, Alito's opinion, he talked about abortion really not deeply held in the American narrative historically. And I found that statement troubling. I am not an attorney. I'm not a lawyer. I'm not a judge. The only bar I've passed is my local tavern. So I just want to put those qualifiers out there. But but it but it seems to me, if you take Alito's statements to heart, that uh, really nothing is deeply held into the in the American narrative until it is deeply held into the American narrative. That's what the amendment process is. That's what rulings are for, right? That's what uh, embodies them into the American narrative. Absolutely. So this is one of the big problems that we identify with the leaked opinion, which is if the current standard is now to, you know, is now to say, you know, you only have rights if they were always around. Right. And if we realize that, as we were just talking about, 
the, the people in power weren't granting rights to, to folks of color and they weren't granting rights to women. It basically means, you know, rights that aren't identified in the Constitution are were rights enjoyed by white men around the founding era. And so, of course, abortion, you know, isn't necessarily going to be identified by a conservative Supreme Court. But it goes well beyond that. And folks should have really serious concerns about other privacy rights and about how this leaked opinion, the logic of the leaked opinion, can translate to a rolling back of rights uh, you know, in the LGBTQ plus community. I mean, folks are even talking about how it could undo interracial marriage, for example. You know, one of the things that um, you sort of just you just touched on uh, about the, the, the larger uh, implications, and let's just take the right to privacy, which is a, for at least for the last, uh, what, 55 years with Griswold versus Connecticut and the conception law, was something thing that most people living today has assumed existed, though the words right to privacy do not exist. Uh, however, the court rule reached that conclusion in Griswold, looking at the First Amendment, looking at the Fourth Amendment, looking at the Fifth Amendment, looking at the Fourteenth Amendment, looking at the Ninth Amendment. I would even say looking at the Third Amendment vis-a-vis uh, -vis quartering troops, that there's implied in that that we do have privacy and Alito says, no, these things really don't exist. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm a little bit more confident that they won't undo the right to privacy for the reasons you just said. So they probably don't like the Griswold decision itself. Um, but that being said, you know, you can spin off half the Bill of Rights and identify where there's implicit protections that, you know, can be read to create a right to privacy, but that right to privacy becomes so important to reproductive freedom, to the rights of adults to engage in intimate conduct in the privacy of their own home, that I'm not sure how far the court is going to roll back some of those rights. And that's problematic because, you know, the right to privacy is not a controversial proposition in America. Right. I mean, we just sort of accept that we have a right to privacy and we have an expectation of privacy. But I don't think it's unrealistic to think that some implications of the right to privacy will be rolled back by this court. And of course, there are conservative state legislatures looking for their opportunity to pass these laws. And they're emboldened by what they believe is a Supreme Court that will support them. I want to touch also on the the, the, the political aspects that, that you alluded to earlier, because even before um, the leaked uh, abortion opinion, that you had state legislatures, in, in case the Supreme Court sides our way, had laws ready to go to really roll back uh, abortion. And if it is political, like as you stated, which, um, as a means to maintain power, um, why wouldn't uh, a right to privacy at the state level, given all these other decisions, we talked about the New York case and elections, why wouldn't a right to privacy at the state level be on the table? It's, just, it's not specifically stated in the Constitution. 
It could be. Um, uh, but I think, you know, this is this is an interesting issue where conservatives, they embrace the right to privacy. And so it doesn't seem to be a foundational part of a conservative agenda to undo a right to privacy. It's a core part of a conservative agenda to undo some of the things that fall under a right to privacy, like, for example, you know, access to abortion, right? Um, I think, you know, we're probably also going to see some other implications where conservatives who hold political power at the state level have a moral opposition to something that might be protected by the right to privacy, and they'll try to roll that back through legislation. I think the Supreme Court will generally be okay with that, but I personally don't think that the, that there's a lot of momentum on the conservative side to go after the core right to privacy itself, because, you know, that that is sort of part and parcel to a conservative philosophy of, you know, keep the government out of my life, leave me alone. One last thing, when we were talking about, um, you know, right to privacy really coming to fruition um, from the court's perspective in Griswold, um, although I would argue it's been there before, but, but, but Griswold um, and the penumbra of rights, if you would, but it, but you you do have some state legislators, uh, especially in, in largely Republican areas, that see contraceptive as abortion. So I, I can certainly see uh, someone going after that and, and maybe putting Griswold on thinner ice. I agree, um, and that's what's really interesting is that. Griswold, you know, we know the case because of its establishment, its recognition of the right to privacy, but it's a, a case about contraceptive access by a married couple. And so what happens when a state, and I think you're right, I think they're going to do this, when a conservative state passes legislation that outlaws some particular type of contraception that they view as an abortifacient, um, where the facts of the case look really, really similar to Griswold versus Connecticut, and you present this to a conservative Supreme Court. That's a risky thing to do, um, because the, the facts could be so similar that they inadvertently open up the door for rolling back the right to privacy. Maybe that's part of the agenda. I just don't see it as a really core part of the conservative agenda to roll back the right to privacy itself. Now, go, go, going back to the to the uh, uh, leak draft uh, uh, opinion for just a moment. Well, we, we've never we've never had this situation before where, where there was a leak draft uh, versus a final opinion. And I have no doubt individuals like yourself will uh, take the final opinion and juxtapose it with the league draft and to understand um, how the two differ, how they're similar. Um, just the notion of the league uh, draft uh, in conjunction with what which will be the final ruling. Uh, talk about how this might impact uh, the subsequent legal debate. Yeah, I mean, it's really unprecedented to have a full draft of an opinion leaked. I mean, there's there's been examples in the past of clerks or, or folks working for the court leaking the outcome of a case, but never a full draft of an opinion, to my knowledge. And, you know, certainly we're going to be comparing these. I mean, you know, when I read when I first read the draft, my initial thinking was, wow, this language needs to be softened. This has 
this isn't a very respectful opinion of precedent. Um, but you know, to me, the the one of the big big takeaways of the leak itself is that John Roberts has lost control of his court. You know, this was like unheard of. There there is such respect for the norms of the Supreme Court amongst its employees, who are very few. Right, we're talking about nine justices. We're talking about four clerks each. The chief gets five and a relatively small um, body of, of administrative staff and court personnel. And they have this reverence for the court as an institution. And the leak of the draft you know, demonstrates that that reverence is breaking down. And as Justice Thomas pointed out, you know, it's like they're operating and they're always looking over their shoulders, wondering what's going on and who's leaking and what's to be done about it. And it's probably really hurt the environment of, of working in the Supreme Court itself. One of the things, for good or bad, has always made the court unique in my view. We were not privy to the sausage making. And the league draft, in my view, changed that. Uh, are you concerned this could inevitably, uh, we might have a, a president sort of taking his cue from uh, the words of uh, Andrew Jackson, when Andrew Jackson said, well, you know, Chief Justice John Marshall has made, him made his decision, now let him enforce it. In other words, there's, I mean, the Constitution doesn't give uh, the Supreme Court any enforcement power. It, 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 it is... Um, it is a body that's been viewed out of respect. And I mean, could, if we just continue down this road, could, could you see that happening? It's possible. And so that, that's the big concern when public support for the Supreme Court goes down. And if it goes down too much, I can't tell you exactly how much is too much. But, it, but if it goes down a great deal, maybe people will stop respecting the court and that means stop following decisions that they don't agree with. That's the big legitimacy concern with the Supreme Court. And as you point out, you know, presidents and governors can play a role in this. You know, the court's headed down a pathway where public support for the court as an institution is at an all-time low. It's, it's the lowest since Gallup started polling on the question. The court is increasingly looked at as a blatantly partisan institution. So I don't know how much you know, more it can take. Um, however, I, I might be one of the few academics who I'm not quite positive that legitimacy matters outside of largely academic uh, conversations, which is to say, I'm not sure that we're going to be in a situation where presidents who have respect for the Constitution, you know, time and time and again, try to undermine the Supreme Court. And the public just routinely ignores decisions with which we don't agree. I mean, it's possible. I know, you know, there's all kinds of examples of Supreme Court decisions that go unenforced. I mean, the, the best one um, is probably the fact that in lots of parts of the country, public school teachers and coaches lead their students in prayer. And that's been unconstitutional for a very, very long time. But it happens. Um, but that's a small example. And for the most part, we as a country follow decisions that we don't agree with. And for the most part, presidents don't try to undermine the Supreme Court. Although that being said, President Trump spoke differently than every president before him. 
and would routinely go after the Supreme Court, criticize its decisions, but actually go after justices by name. And we've really never seen presidents do that in their public rhetoric before. You know, I'm thinking, albeit some 90 years ago, when uh, Franklin Roosevelt tossed out the idea of, of adding members to the Supreme Court, um, there was a large backlash, a, a large bipartisan backlash. And fast forward to 2022, I'm, I'm thinking that the backlash would only come from those opposed to that particular president, where there'd be, a, there'd be another group, um, if it fit their agenda, would, would, ex would accept um, such a unprecedented act. I, I think that's right. I think that's right. So, you know, Republicans are averse to court expansion because it would undermine their political agenda. Democrats tend to support court expansion because it would advance their political agenda. And we used to have, you know, on both in both parties, moderates on issues like this, who institutionalists, sometimes we call them, who are like, you know, this is a bad idea, right? Who, who just have an opinion that you're going to start a basically sort of mutually assured destruction, a tit for tat game where Democrats raise the size of the court to 13 to have a majority. And so in the next election, it's 15 and 17, right? And it just sort of gets out of hand. Um, what I'm observing is that we're seeing fewer and fewer moderates, at least on the liberal side, who who take that position because more and more even liberal moderates institutionalists they're viewing the u.s supreme court as so partisan as so conservative as so unwilling to undo core freedoms that they're sort of reaching a conclusion that that might be the only answer to rein in the supreme court what i'm hearing you say with the last answer is that what has seemed to be have evaporated from the court is the is the notion of trust and that once that trust is gone then all bets are off yeah i mean you know if you think about if you had a supreme court that all the conservatives were like john roberts what you would see is a gradual advancement of a conservative political agenda over decades okay what we're seeing instead is the very quick advancement of a conservative political agenda in a matter of terms, right? So Amy Coney Barrett gets on the Supreme Court and all of the sudden we have these decisions that are really, really radical decisions that align with the conservative political agenda in terms of the Second Amendment, in terms of restricting access to abortion in all likelihood. That's very, very quick. And the court doesn't usually move that fast. How does the political work of Jenny Thomas, wife of Justice Clarence Thomas, play a role uh, in the public perception of the current court, or, or, or is it just, is it, or it plays no role? I mean, it can't be good. It, it's hard to single out what Ginny Thomas's political activism, uh, how it reflects on the Supreme Court, but it can't be positive, right? Um, it seems like every week we learn something more and more troubling that Ginny Thomas has engaged in, particularly the, the latest revelations about the insurrection on January 6th. And, 
you know, it's okay for the partner of a Supreme Court justice to engage in political activity. Where it starts to cross the line is when that justice is participating in cases that have implications for the political activity of their partner. And Justice Thomas seems to be doing that, right? He doesn't seem to be recusing from cases that I don't think it's hard to directly link to his his spouse's political activity. Unless you embrace the um, uh, response from Justice Thomas is that they don't talk about those things. So which would, which would be more of a critique on their marriage, I guess, than than uh... <laughs> it could be, although I, I, I find it um, somewhat hard to take that comment seriously. I want to ask you uh, more of a philosophical question. The time we have remaining, you you sort of touched on it already, but I, but I but I really like to have you uh, drill down on it. Uh, it seems to me uh, the doctrines of originalism and strict constructionism, which the justices that make up the six three majority adhere to varying degrees, um, are are at odds with a nation initially committed to the civic virtue of liberty and equality. Can America remain dynamic when jurisprudence at the highest level seems, my words, conveniently wedded to a stilted 18th century interpretation? It makes it very hard. Um, So when originalism started to take a stronger foothold, you started to see liberal academics, you know, try to advance a more progressive version of originalism I think, to to less success than the conservative version of it. Um, It can be, you know, you you can do originalism through a progressive lens where you focus on more general principles like equality, freedom, liberty, those broad concepts. But the way that the conservative Supreme Court is doing it is drilling down to something very more, much more specific, which is really looking at, you know, how would the the general public have interpreted a very specific provision of the constitution or a very specific legislative statute instead of thinking about the core ideas that we embrace as a nation, right? So you could use originalism to advance equality and, and advance liberty and advance freedom, but that doesn't seem to be the version of originalism that the conservatives on the Supreme Court embrace. Instead, what they're really having us do is turn back the clock. You touched on this also, but have we reached the point? Um, and this, this is, um, I'm, I'm well aware I'm asking you in hypothetical now, but let's say, uh, as we all anticipate, the court will um, really damage Roe. If they don't overturn it, they will do to Roe what they did to the Voting Rights Act, Section 5. And you have this large outpouring. So the Democrats get a windfall uh, as a result of it in the midterm elections. Would the next step, in your view, be changing the configuration of the court? I don't know that you'll have enough Democrats to get on board to do that. Um, I have concerns about court expansion, uh, largely for the reason I mentioned earlier, which is it just becomes a sort of tit for tat game. And the court just, you know, would theoretically continue to expand with the advent of whatever parties in power. I actually think a 
better solution to this problem, although it will take much longer, is to term limit Supreme Court justices to 18-year terms. And that has a that does a few things to take the heat off the Supreme Court and kind of cool things down. One, it makes Supreme Court appointments less salient to elections, right? By basically guaranteeing that every president gets two appointments during a four-year term. And secondly, it more closely ties Supreme Court justices to the public, because part of the problem that we have is that justices are serving for really, really long time, long terms, and they sort of become out of touch with the public. And that leads to some of these decisions that don't really reflect contemporary American norms. And, you know, one of the examples I, I talk about with my students is when you think about Justice Scalia's view of, of the LGBTQ community and, and view of homosexuality in general, that was probably an okay view as, as, you know, repulsive as it is by contemporary standards when he's appointed to the Supreme Court in the 1980s. But by the time he leaves the Supreme Court, really very few Americans have this view that homosexuality, you know, can be criminalized. But because of life tenure, Scalia just holds on to that view. I think term limiting Supreme Court justices can have a lot of benefits, um, not only related to the current, you know, really severe partisanship of the court, but it would take a long time to see those benefits come to fruition. Professor Paul Collins, I want to thank you, sir, for, for joining us today on the, the public morality. I really enjoyed uh, this conversation. Thank you for lending us your time, sir. Thank you very much, Byron. This is a really, really enjoyable conversation. The Public Morality welcomes your comments. You can contact me at byron at publicmorality.org. That's Byron, B-Y-R-O-N, at publicmorality.org. You can follow me on Facebook as well as Twitter. The archive broadcast can be found on iTunes, Spotify, Amazon Prime, and SoundCloud. Those listening to the Public Morality on WSNC can now listen on its app, Using your mobile device, simply go to your application page, search WSNC 90.5, and click open to listen from anywhere. And once again, I want to thank Elvin Jenkins and Michael Burns at WGAB in Huntsville, Alabama, for allowing us to broadcast the Pullman Corrality at their studios. The Pullman Corrality is produced at WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University. For all of us at the Pullman Morality, I'm Byron Williams.